Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Performance Anxiety. This show features bassist and lap steel guitarist Dana Schechter. When we recorded this, she was staying in Berlin after cutting a tour short for her band Insect Arc. She talks about how wild it was for the band and the crew. Someone may have had to sneak back into their home country, but that's all I'm saying about that right now. Dana talks about growing up in the early 80s Bay Area metal scene, driving around and hanging out with Cliff Burton, and how his death really made her focus on bass. She also talks about some of the incredible bands she's been a part of, like Gift Horse, Angels of Light, and Swans, and the difficulties of being an independent artist. She's recently released a new album by Insect Arc, but it wasn't easy. If you like heavy instrumental music, buy it. Follow Dana at Insect Arc. Follow us at Performance ANX. Subscribe, rate, review, share, and without further ado, here's Dana Schechter. Okay. Hey there, this is Dana Schechter from the band Insect Arc, and you are listening to Performance Anxiety. <laughs> yeah, was that all right? Okay. Yeah, so, uh, how are you today? Oh, I'm doing good. It's a very cold day here in Virginia. Oh. So it's, Really? Yeah, there, it, it may actually snow. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's weird. We got some weird cold front coming through and it's like I think the high today is supposed to be 40. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh, it's crazy. Uh, how are you doing? Wow. I'm pretty good. I'm in Berlin and it's about um 75 degrees out today. Oh, <laughs> which is wild. Um it's like proper summer weather and uh, i was just out and everybody's walking around in t-shirts man but i'm sure it'll be cold and crappy again yeah. before long <laughs> so man. but yeah i'm good thanks I've, i have had so many people on from berlin recently it's just it's crazy but you, yeah you i've had uh, andre leo from medicine boy um mm-hmm. uh uh alexander haka and daniel de picciato were on recently um mm-hmm Marco Portia, you know, he's been there and forth. And then there's somebody, who else was there? There's somebody else that I had uh, that was in Berlin. I don't, I don't remember. I think some metal guy. I don't know. Some heavy metal dude. I don't know. But there's, there's at least four or five people over the past like month or so have, uh, that I've recorded have, 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 are all in Berlin. So. Wow. Well, it's, yeah, it's a great place. I lived here for a while, actually. So 
actually everybody has said it's a great especially for artists it's a great place yeah so. it really is so thank you for joining me all the way from berlin uh bef- and, and be- when blah, 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 blah. see editing there we go uh it's a, it's only 10 o'clock I've, i haven't had finished my first cup of coffee yet no no we uh, could have done it later <laughs> no 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 no. I, this is this is actually perfect uh kids are still groggy they're in, they're not gonna be running around all over the place although they're teenagers they're probably not gonna be running around anywhere but <laughs> but um you are you're in berlin and you're in kind of in the middle of a tour when everything had to get canceled for the because of the coronavirus uh were you planning on staying in berlin or did you you didn't get stranded did you i'm not exactly stranded i don't know what the availability or flights are if i did want to go back but um to answer your original question insect arc was on tour and we had completed five shows out of a 16 show tour we had started in greece well we actually started in new york um for the record release show and then we flew to greece and we played in athens and then we flew to berlin got our vehicle and our equipment and picked up all the merchandise and we drove to Brussels and then we drove to the UK and we finished three of the UK shows. And um, while we were in Greece is when things started becoming pretty obvious that there was a really serious problem. And at that point, um, you know, it was really mostly just Italy that was looking like they had a very serious problem. Right. But, um, you know, promoters, we're starting to get really nervous. And while we were in the UK, we were getting notifications that, okay, this, you know, Bratislava just canceled. Okay. Um, you know, this show in uh, Holland just canceled for, you know, so we were yeah. getting these notifications while we were in England Um that, you know, things were really starting to disintegrate pretty quickly. And England was actually one of the later ones to really address the severity of the coronavirus spreading. And the last show that we did was in Brighton and at a tiny little bar and people were in there like it was no big deal. You know, there were, um, people just all shoved up in there hanging out really tight. And, you know, at one point I wanted to get a new glass for my drink and I went to the bartender and I was like, Hey, you know, can I get a new glass? Cause I've been handling this one for a while. And he kind of looked at me like, why? And I said, well, <laughs> you know, because of the virus, like he's like, Oh, right, right. Yeah. We've got to start thinking about that. And then he proceeded to handle the glass and put oh. his hands all over, you know, and then hand it to me. And I was uh. like, Oh, Hey, you know, clearly, yeah, like clearly, you know, they haven't been told that this thing is spreading like wildfire. Yeah. Um, And, you know, within a few days that uh, I think the news was everywhere, then things were starting to get shut down there as well. But, um, you know, we were concerned because we would be going in and out of clubs and um, 
people were, you know, just breathing and spreading and yeah, coughing yeah. and doing what they do. <laughs> yeah, because um, in, in a club show, you're so close to the audience. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And these, you know, those some of those shows were pretty small anyway. And we were actually supposed to fly to Russia the next day after that Brighton show oh, wow. for a festival and, you know, had gone through the whole process of procuring the, the visas and, you know, arranging the flights were bought and everything. And they still wanted us to come. And we were like, nope, wow. because the last thing we wanted to do was get stuck in Russia. And I think oh. that, you know, considering how things were developing, it wasn't, an impossibility because what we decided to do instead was, you know, gracefully say, we're really sorry. Believe us, this is not what we want to do, but we cannot get on a plane to Moscow right now. Um, because we had to really watch our own ass and we had heard that Germany was going to potentially close the border because our driver on the tour was from the Czech Republic. And he told us that, the Czech Republic had already closed the border. Oh, wow. And so we had, you know, this crew of people. So there was myself, you know, I basically live in New York. There's Andy Patterson, our drummer. He lives in Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, Our driver, Martin, um, who lives in the Czech Republic, and our band manager and sound man nikos uh who's greek but lives in berlin so we were like all right we better figure out what the best case scenario is and our driver had also had been bitten by a bug and we had had to take him to the hospital because he had some swelling and that was in england and we were concerned about his health and yeah. So the whole thing was like a little bit crazy. So we basically hightailed it out of Brighton and drove straight back to Berlin. Oh my! And God. you know we drove the van through the, you know there's like a tunnel. Mm-hmm. It's called the they call it the channel. Right. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> and it's basically instead of taking your van on the giant boat, you um, <clears throat> you drive into this thing that's like this long subway car and it holds vehicles and then it's that thing just shoots under the water. Oh, wow. So we basically, yeah, so we hightailed it out of the UK, got back, drove straight back to Germany, stopped at the first grocery store we could once we got <laughs> through. Um, and I think it was a Sunday, and they, we had heard that they might close the border on Monday. So we were like, all right, shit, we got to oh, get wow. back. So we we, st- we have stopped in Germany. We got gas. We went to a gas station, got toilet paper and because we've been hearing this was during the toilet paper section (laughs) of the virus yeah the great toilet paper (laughs) crisis of 2020 yeah anyway sorry that was a long ramble but we did make it back and then um after a few days uh nico our manager managed to figure out how to get andy back to to Utah because our, his flight wasn't for several weeks still. Oh boy. Cause we still had all these tour dates and then That's I right. was already, yeah. And then I was going to already, um, stay because I was slated to start rehearsals with swans on April 1st right. and I was already planned to be gone for three months. And that, you know, so this was like uh, less than like a little over a week into a three month trip. Wow. Man. So, and Martin, our driver, had to kind of sneak back into the Czech Republic because the border was closed. So oh, it, the whole thing geez. was really hairy. It sounds like this could um, be a movie. 
Yeah, and, and it was, you know, it was nerve-wracking because what would have happened if we hadn't been able to get back into Berlin? We would have had a Czech, like a big, giant van from the Czech Republic filled with music equipment from the Czech Republic, <laughs> which we were renting, of course, oh, um, you know, and paying for, and then all this, you know, merchandise, and then, you know, some some people from not from Germany, trying to get to Germany. So it did all work out fine. And I'm still here yeah. and I'm safe here. And, um, at least you're not stuck in you, Russia. Yeah, exactly. And the truth is, Mark, is that it didn't take a mathematician or a virologist to know that New York city was going to get slammed by oh, this. Yeah. And I saw what my options were. And at that point, the Swans stuff had not been officially um, postponed anyway, so I wasn't going to split. But I knew that New York City was going to get head hard, and especially considering the way that I saw that the um, uh, Trump administration was handling it by not handling it and, you know, ignoring the situation and, and you know, botching the thing so terribly. And I was like, all right, I'm not walking into that. It's it's um, it's been amazing. It's it's really we, we got lucky because we had we were pretty well stocked as far as toilet paper With was toilet concerned. Paper. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it, that, <laughs> and what pasta. happened? It, oh, Bread. yeah. We, yeah. Okay, that's that's something that I didn't think was gonna get. Uh, we were gonna be short on was yeast. My wife likes likes uh. to make breads and stuff, and uh, oh, my yeah. my dad lives nearby, and uh, so they were asking for yeast and all. I still can't find yeast. It's insane. The toilet huh. paper is starting to come back, but but right. we, we were um, we, we were doing some just housework while we were uh, in quarantine because my wife had to get tested for the virus early on. It, um, mm. She's in a high risk category. She had she had surgery recently, so she was considered high risk, and she was right. presenting with some symptoms. She had basically every symptom except the fever. So our primary care said, "I want I want you to get tested." So as soon as yeah. as soon as that happened, and that was mid-March, I want to say. And uh, huh. as soon as that happened, both of our employers, her and mine, just shut us down. They said, all right, you're, you're just quarantine yourself for two weeks. So mm-hmm. so we were just at home and we we're like, all right, well, she didn't feel bad. She So she's like, all right, well, uh, let me do some cleaning and, and, and all. And so she did some cleaning and, and found an enormous roll of uh, thing of toilet paper that we didn't have. It was like... <laughs> <laughs> it was like 16 rolls or something. It was, she's yeah, like, sell it for on the, on the black market. I know. It was a currency. It's like, Trade it for a car. Although I didn't want to be like that dude on eBay or Amazon who bought yeah, like 17,000 yeah. <laughs> things of the hand sanitizer. He got stuck with it because Amazon kicked him off. So you can't do that. He bought it for like yeah. a buck and wanted to sell them for 20. What a jerk. Oh, really? Really? It was. And he ended up having to give, well, giving them all away to first responders and, and charity. So at least some good came out of it. But what a what a shitty thing to do to start with. Well, he was obviously onto something. I mean, people who are you know consumed by conspiracy theories, you know, they're <laughs> not wrong with some of this stuff. I mean, society really seemed like it might break down. Yeah. And I think it might still, honestly, but um, I don't know what it's like in Virginia, but here in Berlin, the stores have been open for a couple of weeks. And I think that, 
people feel, you know, like as long as they can buy their, I don't know, whatever, I don't really buy stuff. So whatever people <laughs> buy, um, you know, they want to go shopping and they want to get, you know, Easter decorations or they wanted to get, um, oh, you know, clothes for their stuff, kids yeah. or whatever. People need to sh- have this feeling like they need to shop. And if they can't shop that life is, you know, falling to pieces. And yeah, um, I feel like people here at least started feeling better. Everything's okay. You know, we can shop again, but of yeah. course, you know, what happens is <laughs> then the, you know, they start testing and there's more people getting sick. Yeah. And, um, well, here, you know, I know that's the case everywhere. So here, at least in, in Virginia, I, and I, I can speak a little bit to like Pennsylvania and New Jersey areas. Cause I have family up there and you know, we've been in touch. Fortunately, that's one of the great things about uh, the internet still being up is I can still keep up with my family. But, um, what's going on here is that, um, Places like like grocery stores and all they, they've never been completely closed, um, mm. and but a lot of most of the retail stuff is pickup only or delivery. Um, yeah, including restaurants. But I know a lot of restaurants are, are closing. There's one of my yeah, favorite restaurants sure. in town. Here is is they're not their lease is up in June and they're not going to renew it. Um, Damn. But there's a lot of uh, yeah, like DoorDash is is killing it right now. But mm-hmm. that's that's about it. I mean, you. And the other weird thing that I've noticed is that restaurants are closing at w- weird hours now. Like, there's apparently like some meat shortage going on now. It's, uh, I don't know what the hell. Yeah. But. Uh, well, that's because all the workers are sick. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> like half of them. Yeah, like I mean, I know this is a music podcast and not a political yeah. <laughs> podcast, but you know, there's some pretty there's some pretty serious uh, deficiencies in logic being exposed based on how things are being handled. And honestly, I sometimes wonder if the human species has any concept of doing things in its own self-interest and like having any concept of bigger picture, but maybe that's a discussion for another uh, yeah. time. <laughs> I, I will agree with you completely on that, but so yes. Okay. Yeah. So, Back to to the the actual uh, topic of conversation, which is you. So, how old were you when you started actually playing music? Did you, did you grow up in a musical household? Were your parents playing a lot of music? Yeah, I did. My mom played flute, and she played piano, and so I picked up flute as well. Oh wow! When I was nine, and then um, I guess. The first year of junior high school, I was in the school band and I played upright bass, um, which was hilarious because I was this little shrimp of a kid, you know, standing, <laughs> literally standing on a box, you know. Um, but that also coincided with the next year, age 12, is when I actually started going to metal shows. Oh, wow. And um, yeah, and so I gave up the upright bass because I just wasn't, I don't know, I lost interest. I'm really, all I wanted to do was go to metal shows, and that's pretty much what I did, besides being a kid, uh, along with my older sister. Um, we had just moved back from Oregon, where we lived. So I grew up in San Francisco, okay. and my folks were divorced. My dad, at some point, moved to Oregon, and for one year, my older sister and I 
lived with him. And that was the year that, uh, right before I entered junior high school. And okay. while we lived in Oregon, uh, my sister Leah, uh, her best friend Lisa was sending these letters to us saying, it's so awesome. I met these hot rock dudes and they're in a band and I went and saw their band and they were awesome and they were so killer. And, you know, oh my and God. we were like, and we were like, Whoa, wow. And Lisa uh, has a younger sister, Stephanie and Stephanie's my age. And so, so Lisa and Stephanie were like, you guys move back here next year. We're going to go check out all these metal bands and these hard rock bands. And, you know, there's all these cool people. And we were living in a town of 10,000 people in Ashland, Oregon, Ashland, Oregon is no longer 10,000 people, but you know, we were raised in the, in San Francisco, in the mission district and the hate Ashbury district. So oh. we were really city kids and wow, that's a change. you know, it was, it was great to live with our dad for a year, but it wasn't really our personality. So we were pretty chomping at the bit to move back to San Francisco and, and we did. So starting the first year of junior high school, um, my sister Leah and I, and along with Lisa and Stephanie and some other friends, um, started going to metal shows. And so, oh, man. um, Bay area metal. Yeah. Particularly the thrash metal scene, because yes. that's what was happening there. So nice. that is actually a really key point in my development as a heavy music person and also why I play bass. And there's a okay. bunch of stories related to that. Um, <laughs> but I will let you direct the conversation yeah. with more questions no if you problem. like. That's this is, this is just an open conversation. We're, we're just chatting. So, so what kind of bands were you seeing live? Who, who anybody that, uh, that, that I'd recognize? Yeah. If you are into metal, you would. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, so there was, you know, there was a, there was definitely a lot of these sort of midsize and smaller local bands, but the ones that were popular that we were friends with, there was Exodus was a, were oh, really good friends yeah. with us. And, um, bands like death angel and yep. stuff like that. But, um, the ones that were really popular that were our friends group was Metallica. And, um, nice. that's a good group. And to then, yeah. Yeah. And then Slayer was around too. So we were, Man. you know, this was a couple of years later, honestly, but my sister was James Hetfield from Metallica's girlfriend when she was, Oh wow. She was young. Let's put it that way. That's, she was young. And yeah. And it was before they blew up, like right before they blew up. That's awesome. Um, this is, so this is like the no life to leather era. Well, this was like, they released kill them all in, I, I don't have the, it's early eighties. Yeah. It was early eighties. I mean, we were into bands, like all these British metal bands. That was the scene of music that we listened to, like bands like Motorhead and, you know, Diamond Head. Yes. A lot of British metal. And of course, you know, the big bands like Judas Priest and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. But so when Metallica kind of showed up in the scene in the Bay area, they, you know, showed up from LA and there was already this really bustling and vibrant, metal scene and i think you know history 
has documented that they were welcomed into our <laughs> community and, uh, you know, subsequently blew up. But, yes. um, but th- those were a group of friends. And so we, you know, we hung out with them all the time and, you know, the reason I play bass, that, just, I was just, just going to ask you. Yeah. The jump to, so later I started playing bass at 16 and the reason I started playing bass was b- because of Cliff Burton from Metallica and Cliff is for anybody who doesn't know, Cliff Burton was the bass player who died on tour with Metallica. And he was the one who was on all the really seminal early Metallica albums. And yeah. Cliff and I were, were friends and we used to hang out a lot. And, you know, all the people in that scene were a good few years older than me. And they were always like, you should start playing music again. You know, you should pick up a bass again you're so much younger than us. By the time you're our age, you'll be really good. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And I was like, Cliff, give me bass lessons. And he was like, no problem. You know, get a bass. I'll give you bass lessons. And we would like drive around in his car and listen to the misfits and, you know, Oh my gosh. Et cetera. Hanging out. Lots of tons of stories. But anyway, around the time that they started blowing up, then they were gone and, you know, they were always on tour and I didn't get the bass. And, you know, this all seems like years in my mind, but it was really like six months. And I kind of around the age of 16 sort of started getting interested in different kinds of music, like more like dark, gothy stuff like Bauhaus and Ah, like that. And I wasn't going to as many metal shows and Metallica was playing stadiums by that time. And so anyway, you know, I had really meant it that I wanted to learn bass again. And it was, it was in earnest, but you know, I was a teenager. And so I was just kind of doing whatever. And when Cliff, when Cliff died, I said, you know, I'm going to go get a bass. And I went and I got the bass that week and I started playing it you know, to honor him and to also sort of cement personally my dedication to the idea that if you say you want to do something and you mean it, then you should really do it because yeah. you don't know what's going to happen. And I, I wouldn't say I kicked myself that I didn't get bass lessons from, from Cliff Burton, but I mean, he was an incredible musician and also oh, one yeah. of the coolest, one of the coolest humans you could ever meet. And anyway, you know, I, I went and I got that. a bass and I'm, and I still play it. In fact, I have it with me and I'm looking at it right now. Oh, I've wow. had this bass since I was 16 oh, and it's the God. one that I use on tour and on all the records. And so that was my sort of beginning of playing Bass. See, I've, I've so I'm really that. a bassist. That's my. That's my. So name. okay. See, yeah. So you you're a bassist. You didn't just switch from something. It, that's it. That's who you are. Yeah, I'm a bassist. Man. Okay. So was it? <laughs> I'm trying to. I I have a question that I've, I've wanted to ask, but I think he I think he just kind of answered it because I wanted sure. to know if there was a, a band in particular that really flipped that switch and made you want to do it professionally as opposed to just well I want to learn the bass. Cliff was was amazing, awesome. I, I want to learn the bass in his honor. To I want to do this professionally. Was it did that all happen at the same time, or was there something that you that that made you progress from learning it to being the basis professionally. 
Well, I mean, keep in mind, you know, I was 16. Right. So, I don't know. I wouldn't say that I, at age 16, decided to point myself in the direction of being a professional musician. But what I can say is that, like many people with creative brains, you know, much of my life, I felt pretty lost and unsure what I was supposed to do. And I didn't really grab onto any of the traditional things that are offered to college age students, you know, Mm -hmm. you could study business, you could become a nurse, you could become a doctor. And I was like, no, no, no. And, you know, and I'd always been a visual artist and for better, for worse, I have a pretty like creative brain. And so when I found (laughs) music, I was like, damn, this is, makes me really happy. This makes me feel really good. I want to do this. And so I got really, really into it. And I just was really happy to find something that I really enjoyed. That was the main thing that I was like, finally, I found something that I think I can do. And, you know, makes me feel really good. And I just kind of went for it. I just yeah. grabbed onto it like a pit bull and just didn't <laughs> let go. Well, you mentioned that you're also a visual artist. You filmmaker yeah. and and where you do a lot of documentaries and were you interested in that at the same time as you started learning bass no i mean uh, it's important to clarify i'm not a filmmaker i'm an animator animator Sorry. and yes yeah, so basically i started out i started out as a painter as a teenager when i was um studying art I was studying oil painting and printmaking and etching and stuff like that. And while I was studying that, I got exposed through the college in San Francisco to sort of rudimentary computer graphics and which led to a job. And then on that job, I was exposed to different kinds of software and I discovered one that was really exciting to me. And I decided to teach myself that I got a copy and I taught myself that. Oh, wow. And it turns out that it's by some amazing stroke of luck, still really relevant in the <laughs> visual field. And it's used for, it is used for films, but it's also used for television and it's used for, um, a number of things, web stuff. And it's basically, like a moving version of Photoshop. It's called Adobe After Effects. And so oh, yeah. it's the term is kind of motion graphics. And you're a photographer, so you're familiar with the Adobe software. And yeah. so basically, you know, I as far as film work goes, you know, the animation work I've done is not like animation. When you say computer animation, people think about character animation or they think about cell animation, you know, like the Simpsons or something, but it's nothing like that. It's, it's much, how do you explain it? It's much more um, graphic or film or video or effects based as, as opposed to commercially like cell animation. Right. You're not doing Disney stuff. Yeah, and I'm not doing really character animation, which yeah. is animation. To say you do animation is the same thing as like saying, I'm a musician. So like if somebody right. says, oh, what do you do? I'm a musician. So like that can mean, a, first of all, a lot of things. Yeah. It can, you know, you could say like I play the, 
you know, the tambourine. I'm a musician. You could say, like, I'm a, you know, first chair violinist in orchestra. I'm a musician. So there's a lot of steps in between. Yeah. Um, so when I say I'm an animator, that's just like the it's kind of like boonk, very broad the easy stroke, version. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But for, for, you know, like anything, there's thousands of facets of you know, what that means. Exactly. Exactly. So, unless you're, yeah. unless you say you're a podcaster and then it's just like one thing and everybody well, does no, that. but that's not true. <laughs> I don't think anything is as simple as just one thing. I guess you could say that, you know, if you just like fix tires on a car, like I just, all I do is change tires on cars all day. That's all I can do. And that's all I do. And like, in the end, but yeah. I don't think that anything is, there's ever a simple answer, unfortunately. I'm always looking for the simple answer, but it doesn't exist. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. But I do have a question that does have a simple answer for you. Sure. What was the first band that you recorded with? The first band I recorded with was called the Mud Puppies. The and Mud Puppies. <laughs> the Mud Puppies, yep. And the Mud Puppies was um, a group of friends in San Francisco. I guess I was probably... 17, 18, and Mud Puppies was really like a rock and roll band. It was these guys that were friends, um, Ted and Chris and Jim, and they were all from Detroit, and they were really into this sort of Detroit rock and roll, not like MC5-type rock and roll, but we did a cover, like a Deep Purple cover, give you a, oh, nice. some context. <laughs> but it was fun. It was fun, and my, you know, my friend Dave who had been my boyfriend at the time. He had started out in that band and then he left. But, um, you know, it was, it was like good times. It was, it was fun. And I played my first shows with them as well. And we made, I don't know if that record even came out. Um, <laughs> but that must've been, I don't know, 87, 88, oh, wow. something like that. Um, but the, my re sort of, and I was in it for like a couple of years, I guess. But my sort of main first, like, really serious band was called Gift Horse. I and, was just um, talking to somebody about that yesterday. I mentioned about that band. Yeah, I mentioned that that you were coming on the show. It's a, a friend of mine out in like the, I think he's in the Kansas City area. Mm -hmm. He's a huge Swans fan, and mm -hmm. uh, he's in a band in the '90s. Um, blank on their name right now, and Steve's going to kill me when he hears this. Um, Edit it in later. <laughs> <laughs> Do it. He'll be so happy. But sorry, Steve. <laughs> um, <laughs> season to risk. That's oh yeah, of course. Okay, so Steve Tulipana, um, we I, I mentioned that you were coming on. Uh, said I've got another because I've had a, a few people who are tangential to Swans. I had fortunately, I've been fortunate enough to have Michael on himself. But I know that was great. I heard it. Oh, good. I'm glad I, I got so, man, he was one person that really made me nervous talking to him. Uh, but, he's Michael's a puppy. <laughs> <laughs> Not See, really, but <laughs> Swans, <laughs> Swans was one of those bands that um, when I first heard him, I didn't get it. it. It kind of frightened me. Actually, it was a white light from the mouth of infinity was the first thing I ever, you know, that album, and uh, it took years for me to actually get into them. And once I got into them, though, I'm, you know, I'm 100% full on into them. And so right. I was talking to Steve. Steve has been a fan for years, year, 20, 30 years, whatever, you know. And um, I said, uh, I got Dana coming on. And he's like, 
I think I know somebody who played with her in, in, around the gift horse era. I'm like, oh, okay. It's, and it, I think he said it was, he wasn't sure if it was Tim Dow or not, but um, he he was like, I love gift horse. That was, they were awesome. So the fact that, that you well, brought that up, I'm like that, I got I to gotta remember that uh, Steve was mentioned, talking about that. Well, yeah, Gift Horse was um, a three-piece instrumental band. It was sort of like Prague, Prague <laughs> rock, but not like psych Prague rock. Okay. Um, and it was just the three of us. There was never any other men- members, and it was started by me and a guy named Jeff Whitehead. Jeff is a was playing drums and I was playing bass and um, okay. a guitar player named Doug Hillsinger. And many people know Jeff now under the name Leviathan. He's a very, very uh, well-respected, popular one-man uh, American black metal band. Okay, I've heard and, of that, yes. Yeah, so, of course, this was, you know, we were not even 20, I think, when we started that band. And that band started literally, like, Jeff and I have been friends, and we were listening to a lot of stuff, like, we were listening to a lot of Steve Albini stuff, like, Steve Albini type, but not type, but stuff that Albini had recorded, like, Jesus Lizard and Big Black and Rape Man and bands like that. And we were like, hey, let's start a band. Cool. Okay, so where are we going to rehearse? And I was like, I don't know. I live on this really busy street in San Francisco. It's really noisy. There's a restaurant downstairs, and there's this, like all these like stoners that live upstairs from me. So let's just rehearse in my bedroom. So bring your drums over. So he brought his drums over, and I got a bass amp, and we started playing in my bedroom. This is like a residential neighborhood in San Francisco. And the guys that lived upstairs, um, Doug, Hillsinger being one of them, um, Doug was playing in this band called Bomb, B-O-M-B, who was playing, they played all the time, and we would go see them, and we loved Bomb. Bomb was amazing. And Doug was in Bomb, and we were like, man, maybe Doug will hear us and come down and be like, (laughs) hey, you guys sound good. And eventually that did happen, and we were like, hey, do you want to play with us? So that's how Gift Horse was formed, and we rehearsed in my bedroom and we did tons of shows and we made two albums and nothing ever happened. And none of us had like a shred of sense about business or anything. We never toured. The records were put out on these tiny, tiny labels. I think the second one didn't even officially come out and we would like pack venues. So it's just really a sad thing because you know, it was, the music was really good and it's all out there if you know where to find it. You know, that was my first band that I was really, really serious about, and it was really challenging. And I learned a lot from both of those guys. And um, So how did you go from bass to lap steel? 
Well, a lot happened in between. Um, <laughs> so, okay, so let's, between, let's get into the in-between stuff then. Yeah, so basically, um, Gift Horse pretty much stopped. And to be honest, I don't really remember why. Um, I, But it might have coincided with me moving to New York. Um I moved to New York okay. from San Francisco in 1997. And the reason that I left is that I felt that I had kind of done everything in San Francisco that I could do, which is absurd, but that's how <laughs> it felt at the time. And I had told myself, you know, I'm from the city and when there's no more reasons to stay here, then I'll go. And yeah. of course that's subjective because my family was and still is there and had tons of friends and you know I had it really good there and I lived in an amazing warehouse space out by the bay and it was you know I had like this giant loft and big community but I think that I was just really itching to move on with my life and you know San Francisco that can be where it was pretty casual and I wanted to get really serious about music and I wanted to become an an animator and I had been studying this animation software and I wanted to start my own band and I had started writing songs and I had in the interim taught myself piano and a little bit of drums and basic recording and I had also started to sing and um, all of those were just because I couldn't find anybody to do it that understood stylistically what I was going after. And at that time I was listening to a lot of stuff like Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds and PJ Harvey and that sort of like dark adult music that could be noisy and could be mellow. And, you know, that's really where my head was at. And I was, I couldn't really find anybody to do that with me. And I was looking and looking and, couldn't do it. And I was like, fuck it. I'm out of here. I'm, yeah. I'm going to go. Yeah, exactly. So I moved to New, I moved to New York and that was within a, a couple of years after kind of getting established and starting to do my freelance animation work on mostly on commercials initially and started meeting different people. Um, that's when I met Michael draw. And that's also when I started that band that I had for 12 years called B and flower. Yeah. They kind of happened all around the same time. Oh, okay. Okay. And all right. So, so you meet Michael Gerard and then, and B and flower and and B and flower. um, That was a band that I was familiar with, but Mm -hmm. didn't know much about. I I think back when you, when you were active there, I remember hearing about the band but I oh never, really yeah but I never because uh, I'm trying to remember was that when I was living in New because I've lived in New Jersey for for years and years and I'm trying to remember if that was around the time or uh, it I moved down south after you know 15 years in in the New York New Jersey area I'm trying to remember if it was because I heard it or a buddy of mine had it and was telling me about it but I never dove too deeply into it until recently and. Damn it! I missed out because I love being flower. Oh, thanks! It's fantastic, and I was that. Um, oh gosh, I wrote this down. I'm my my notes are just scattershot all over the place. Yeah, that's but, cool. <laughs> but uh, 
There's My brain a, is scattershot. So. <laughs> okay, we're in good company. The song, and, and I mentioned this to you before. You know, we were talking before the show. It, it's that being flower sounds nothing like what you're doing now to me, at least to start with. Um, mm-hmm. Like insect arc, it does, they don't. To me, there's almost until I heard what you told me to listen to, which is the "What's Mine Is Yours" album, and get get really deep into it. It it sounds more all country um uh and there's that one album that came out just in the in in europe that with so many there's strings all over it's beautiful it's i'm i'm just really upset with myself that i, I didn't find this out because the, the band's amazing the, the coda the violin coda on i know your name literally yesterday i'm sitting at work and i'm tearing up because it was, it was so beautiful Me John all weird. Petro. I'm, yeah, I'm, John I'm, Petro playing that beautiful violin. Yeah. Oh, it's it's amazing. So, how did you go that route? It's it, and and I do hear a little bit more heaviness in that last album, but there's a lot of like like alt country influences in in that. How did how did that creep into your vocabulary from from your metal background? Well, okay, so right, so when I was. I'll see if I can explain this on a <laughs> kind of linear timeline. Basically, remembering what I had said, I was I moved to New York because I wanted to get serious about music and the kinds of yeah. songs that I had been making on my four tracks were, you know, bass and piano and like really crappy guitar playing because I've never been a guitarist and <laughs> it was for me all about bass and piano and, and drums. And, um, you know, as I said, I had really been listening to a lot of this stuff like Bad Seeds, Tinder Sticks, you know, bands that were doing this kind of twisted, dark lounge music. Right. I mean, it was a very specific scene. And when I got to New York, um, it took me a little while to meet people. And I basically had written the better part of, you know, like a set's worth of material and started finding some people to play it with me. Okay. And some of that material was, you know, a couple years old. I had written it back in San Francisco, but some of it was new. And at that point, yes, I was listening to stuff like Bad Seeds and Tinder Sticks and PJ Harvey, but I still was listening to stuff like, uh, like birthday party or Jesus lizard or Casper Bratzman or swans or things like that, that were like sort of heavier and noisy. And so my sort of vision, if you want to call it that for being flower was to combine this sort of depressive lounge music mixed with like sort of this sort of dense, 
heaviness and this sort of orchestrated idea. And that, so the people that got involved for the first album were largely playing parts that I had written and I had written all the songs. And many times I had written the melody lines or I had written, you know, just a melody. And then I was like, okay, who wants to pick this up? The violinist would play it. And I'd be like, that's great. Or the piano player would play the piano part that I had written. And, you know, over time as the band developed, people, you know, that our styles kind of blended, but initially, you know, it was stuff that I had written and that was difficult because I didn't know how to lead a band. And I think I was a real pain in the ass, but (laughs) the outcome of that was the first album called what's mine is yours. And that is probably the closest to what the vision for the band was, which was like sort of like heavy and sad and really pretty, you know, and orchestrated and dark. And what happened over time is that, and, you know, relationships develop between people and in an effort to make the band a band and not be my band, um, I started saying like, okay, yeah, well maybe we can try your idea or, you know, instead of writing other people's parts, they wrote their parts and I wanted it to become a band. I never wanted to be a dictator, but I also had this really unflinching ideas about how I wanted things to sound. And honestly, I didn't enjoy being a front person. I didn't enjoy being the person making all the decisions. I wanted it to be collaborative, but you can't expect to find people who share your vision. Even if they like your ideas, that doesn't make you a collaborator. Okay. Yeah. So there, you know what I mean? So yeah. the relationships thing got a little complicated. And so the sound changed and between the first record and the second record, you know, the first record being what's minus yours, which was released by neuro recordings, which is, the label from the band Neurosis. Right, right. Totally different, but, you know, they got it. They understood what what we were trying to do. In the interim between that and Last Sight of Land, which was only released in Europe, which we made with a producer who was my bandmate, Larry Mullins, a.k.a. Toby Dammit, who I played in Angels of Light with and moved to Berlin with. It's like there's all these stories in there, but basically Larry produced last sight of land. And we were both really into these like heavily orchestrated sort of soundtracky kind of almost Scott Walker type arrangements. Okay, and so yeah. the writing, I wrote all the songs like as the quote unquote songwriter, but he wrote the arrangements and it was with his direction that it, that album went into this very kind of um, lush, but kind of icy distant yeah, that's sound perfect. Almost no guitar at all, as where the first album had a lot of guitar. So it yeah. it was a departure for the band. Yeah, I mean, I, I, honestly, I can I I get a little soundtrack vibe out of out of both of them. Being flower sounds more like it could be a something 
from Twin Peaks ish era. Yeah, David exactly. Lynch. And sure. and Being Flower is is a little more orchestrated. I mean, Being Flower, uh, Last Side of Land. I'm looking at the album cover right now. So, uh, Last Side of Land sounds a little more uh, orchestrated. A little. I don't want to say. Um, radio friendly or commercial but it's 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 a little bit lighter to me way lighter yeah, yeah. than what's mine is yours um i'm getting like like a i know your name on the mouth the, those those are really lynchian sounding songs to me but um mm-hmm. and i hear and we'll, we'll get to insect arc soon but i i definitely hear that on a song like let it shine it's you know it's kind mm-hmm. of peeking through, um, and then the song "Dupe," that <laughs> that song that song fascinates me because it kind of sounds like everyone's kind of doing their own thing, like unaware of what everybody else is doing, but it it works. It, it everything meshes. It's, mm-hmm. it's a really interesting song. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. It, that song always sounded like some giant gear or like a inside of a watch, like all these things moving at different yes. Yes. rates, but they all lock in in this weird way. Exactly. And Dupe was one of the ones that I had written completely and like presented it to the band. And I had written that in my, you know, bedroom in San Francisco in the oh. dark, like oh my God. <laughs> on my piano, you know, I had done. Yeah. That's like probably the oldest song. That is, it's such a cool song. I love it. It's one of my favorites on the album, but yeah, nice. So when did you start actually playing the lap steel or the, the, pe- or the pedal steels, whatever? I'm lap not sure. The, steel, yeah. When did that start coming up? Because that's in be in flower. Yeah. So Lynn Wright, um, who was the guitar player for the, the years that Pian Flower was based in New York, um, Lynn also played lap steel. And initially when he joined, I had wanted him to only play lap steel. I was like, I don't want Pian Flower to have any guitar because I didn't want it to, the band to sound like anything else. I was like, if you take away the thing that all bands have, what's that guitar? Yep. And find other solutions, it's going to sound like nothing else. So right. in the end, it sense. was just too, yeah, it was made sense to me, but. <laughs> he's a great Lynn is an incredible guitar player. So I was like, all right, you know, his sense of like his whole style and his phrasing and his sense of dynamics, like Lynn and I never heard to hardly ever had to talk about anything creative because he just got it. Um, oh, nice. So it's okay. Oh, fine. You're good enough. Go ahead. Not even <laughs> that. I just mean that in the sense that, you know, other people, sometimes we would work together on their parts just because, you know, it was my idea of how the music should be arranged and orchestrated. So somebody would come up with something and I'd be like, I don't know, I think it's a little too, too busy. Maybe you could, you know, pull out some notes or maybe you could hold this one and, you know, sort of yeah. working together. But Lynn would always just come up with something. And I was like, yeah, that world, you know, <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Awesome. That's beautiful. Um, and Lynn makes amazing music of his own now and does scores for dance and film. And he's really, you know, done amazing stuff. All those guys are 
incredible musicians. Um, but there's one album that got skipped between Bandflower and uh, Insect Arc, and it's the sort of the story leading to Insect Arc. Is, so what happened was Bandflower made the first record during 9-11, like we were making that record oh. during September, during the whole September 11th thing. And wow. it was, it was devastating. Like to be in New York trying to make that record. We made it, we mixed it. We had a falling out with most of us falling out and myself and Roderick Miller, who's the piano player and Larry Mullins, AKA Toby Dammit, who I had been playing with in angels of light. And Michael draw had sort of given us walking papers from angels of light. And we were like, screw it. And we came to Berlin. So myself and Rod and Larry came to Berlin to make last sight of land and decided to stay here. Um, so here I am in Berlin again and, um, <laughs> ended up living here. I ended up living here for four years. Larry and Rod both stayed and then I, after four years, moved back to New York. Okay. And then uh, Wall in Berlin, Bien Flower, there was a Berlin version of Bien Flower with several different people, um, oh. quite, a, quite, a, quite a handful of different musicians, but um, some of them were around more than others. And uh, Thomas and Yoni and Reiner and like all it's just Budo, tons of folks, Sibylla, people who played with us in different different, you know, lengths of time. And some were just for recording, some for touring. But then okay. when I moved back to New York, we made that album Suspension. And Suspension is uh, not really well known, but I think it's a really great record, actually. And it was made between Germany and New York, and it involves people from both the original Bee and Flower, we kind of made up and with the guys that stayed behind, which was Lynn and John guitar player and violinist and myself and Rod and Larry was never really in the band. And then, uh, Ethan Donaldson joined for drums and then we tried to tour a little bit and that was basically the end of being flower. And so when, when I moved back to New York in 2008, I was just really zapped like out of energy from trying to manage a band on two continents. And like, it was always really uphill trying to get anything to happen with that band. Like I loved it and I had invested you know, a lot of years into it, like 12 years invested a lot of time, yeah. a lot of love, a lot of energy, a lot of money. And you know, it was quote unquote my band. It was our band, but like it was, you know, I was the songwriter and I was the manager and business wise that band was, I don't want to say a failure, but, it was not successful and okay. it was very, it was really hard to get things going. Yeah. And I never really understood why, because I think, you know, I'm, I stand behind the work. I think it's something I'm really proud of. Oh, I never wanted to, I never wanted to be a singer and I never wanted to be a front person. And I, I didn't want to, like I say, be even a band leader, but, um, I had ideas and I had time and I would sit on I would end up writing all these parts and it's like, well, God damn it. I just wrote a song with five parts. So like <laughs> now what I really like those ideas. Can you play that part? So that, it was more like that. Okay. Um, so when I moved back to New York in 2008 and I decided to, you know, split from Berlin after we made suspension and I was like, you know what? I just don't have it in me. This band has just drained me and, 
not been successful. So, and not even like personally successful in the sense, like I had this work that I really believed in, but it wasn't about money. It was just about like, I couldn't get people together. I couldn't schedule things. We didn't have any opportunities for tours. We couldn't find a booking agent. We oh, didn't wow. like, yeah, you know, we just couldn't get anything happening. It just was like, I felt like I was beating a dead horse. So I was like, you know what? I'm not killing off this band, but I'm sort of, it's kind of going on a semi-official hiatus. And then I was right. like, Oh, well now what? Like, and I was like, well, I think I'm going to just do something alone. What can I do alone? And then I got this lap steel and I had this opportunity to go out on tour with my friends in this band enablers. And they were like, yeah, but there's only room for one person in the van on this Europe tour. Can you do something alone? And I was like, sure. So I like <laughs> scrambled it together and I wrote some parts and I got a lap steel and I figured out how to do this thing live. And I, that was the beginning of insect arc and it just went from there. Oh my gosh. I, I can't imagine. See, I, I love playing music. I, I, I'm not a very, I'm not a good musician. I'm not a musician, uh, but I love playing my guitar. I love making noise. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine mm -hmm. picking up something that seems as complicated as a pedal steel and just being, yeah, I'll do something with that. Well, it's not a pedal steel. I can't play pedal steel. Okay. The lap steel. They're very different. Okay. So, so what's, it's all right, like so what's the, the difference, difference between like a tricycle and a Cadillac? <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So, so, okay. Not so, really, but kind of. So, okay. So the, I'm, I'm not smart enough to play <laughs> pedal steel. So the pedal steel is the one with the foot. All the levers. Yeah. Okay. yeah it, it bends the bridge and it changes the pitch of individual notes. If you, yeah, I mean, I could probably play it now that I've been playing that so well, but it's hard. Yeah. That, and that's why I was, I'm like, this, this sounds crazy. So, but, so you're playing the, the lapsy, which is still different. It's still, it's, it's very hard. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, half the time it sounds like an animal that's like really sick, Yeah, <laughs> which can be great if you do that through distortion and delay. It sounds awesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. So, so insect arc, uh, well, actually before we even get into insect arc, I, I do have a, I want to go back just a little bit and find out a little bit more about how you met up and started working with Michael Girard of Swans. Mm -hmm. So how did you guys meet yes. up and how did, how did, how did you start touring with him with angels of light? Yeah. So basically, uh, I had been recommended to Michael from two separate people. He was looking for a bass player slash multi-instrumentalist. Okay. And, um, David Burton, who I knew from San Francisco, who was a tour manager, he recommended me. And then Kevin Wardis, who was a band manager and works many, many different hats in the music industry. Both of them I knew from San Francisco and both were living in New York as well. Okay. And I guess Michael was just asking around and they both said, oh, you should contact Dana. And so it, that was for the tour of the first angels record called new mother. Okay. And, um, so I joined for that tour and then I stayed in the band and, you know, worked on how I loved you. And oh. then, yeah. And then, you know, we did a bunch of tours. One of them was recorded in different places. There was a live record called we were alive, which, I don't have a copy of. Oh, um, wow. And then there was 
everything is good here, please come home, which was sort of towards the end of my run in Angels. Okay. And so, so you recorded with Angels and you recorded with Swans. Was there, is it similar experiences working with both, even though they're both Michael Girard, but they're, they're different bands? Well, I mean, I can't compare them because my involvement with Swans, even though I am officially a member of Swans, we haven't, we haven't toured yet with this new lineup right. that I'm part of. And the recording that I did was adding bass to an existing track oh, okay. in New York. Okay. So that was me going to the recording studio with my bass and sitting with Michael and the engineer, Jason, and, you know, <laughs> okay. um, you know, developing a bass track and recording it. So my, my recording on the new Swans record is just this one track um, called Some New Things. So, oh, I love that song. It's fun, you know. It's really long. Yeah, um, and it's one. I'm playing one note in four different places, like boom, 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 boom. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so it's so you know, it's been a long time since I worked with Michael. In between last year when I recorded that bass part, and when I was in Angels, it was like almost twenty years. But wow. I maintained friendships with Michael as well as a bunch of the guys that were in angels of light that were also in swans like Christoph Hahn and Thor Harris. And then, um, Paul Walfish who sort of replaced Thor when Thor wasn't in swans anymore. We're also really good friends. And I was in Paul's band called Botanica and, you know, and then also like Norman and Christopher and Phil and then Cassis who, played in angels also like these are all people that have been friends and we've been in each other's realms and involved in the same music community this whole time so in a way i've been like remained connected to that scene okay. without actually you know being part of the, right. the band <laughs> but um was it like i can't really say if if it's changed, I guess there's some things that have probably changed about working with Michael, and there's probably some things that are, you know, identical. Yeah. Hard to say. <laughs> yeah. Or similar. And, and, you know, who knows, once things pick up again, once the touring starts, because um, when he came on the show, he, he said he was going to do something completely different with the tour, and it was going to be more of them, the band members just kind of sitting chamber music style, playing at each other. So... You know, who knows? Who knows what's, what it's actually going to end up being once touring can resume. But yeah, I mean that's how Angel set set up. We were set up in like this semi-circle oh, okay. with Michael in the middle, and um, the drums were not necessarily in the back. You know, yeah. so I think it'll still be loud. Honestly, it won't be as loud. And it won't be as bludgeoning, but I think it's not going to be, 
it's not going to be easy listening. It's going to be a quiet tour. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I would be surprised because, you know, Michael doesn't want to go out and play these songs. Like, he's totally uninterested in developing uh, live versions of the album that are the same. I mean, he wants yeah. to fuck with it and rework it and change it and make it new. And that's, it's really challenging, but it's really exciting. And, you know, the demands that he puts on the musicians are not unlike the demands he puts on people at shows where it's, you know, a lot of it is about like, how long can you take it? Yeah. How long can you push something? Um, it, it kind of burns you clean in a way. And I think that, you know, even though it can be extremely challenging and exhausting and you could question why, um, the proof is there that somehow that sensibility is transferred to the music and it transfers onto the album and it certainly translates in the live experience. I'm, I'm, I have, unfortunately, since I'm kind of a late comer to Swan's, I've not had a chance to see a live show yet, and I'm dying to see a live Swans show in, in any form. But you should check Marco's film that he made because I think that that captured really a lot of it. Yeah, I, he I, uh, I he sent me a uh, a link where I could watch it. It was it's amazing. It's yeah. Oh gosh, I, I'm I can't wait to actually be able to own it and pick it up in uh, and. Because he said that he, uh, the original was like four hours long that he sent to Michael. Yeah. And so he said all that stuff that he cut, he ended up having to cut out two hours, but he kept it. And that's going to be like bonus material that for right. on the disc. So I'm, I can't wait to see what's, what I didn't get to see. So, so, right. Right, so back to insect arc, there's mm-hmm. a, there's a recurring theme of, of bugs in your names. <laughs> Is that on purpose? Like <laughs> um, hmm. I am a fan of bugs, actually. <laughs> oh, really? My daughter, yeah. youngest daughter, is the exact opposite. She can't... St- in she fact, oh, my gosh. If there's if there's anything in her in the bathroom or in her... Dad, come here. You got to get this bug out of here. Okay, okay. And it's usually something harmless, like a stink bug. Well, yeah, some people are creeped out by bugs and snakes. I like creepy things <laughs> <laughs> all right so as long so, as they're not like crawling in my ear or like while i'm asleep or like crawling in my mouth while i'm asleep you know yeah, oh good oh yeah <laughs> oh, that, for some reason i just flash back to one of the star trek movies where they put that like that grub in thing in, in the, oh good yeah all right <laughs> so, <laughs> so insect art began as a solo project and because so you could actually achieve the sound that that you had in your head well, um, I knew that it would become that, but honestly, it was initially an opportunity for me to do something completely untethered to other people and to any predefined expectations of what it was going to be. Okay. Because for me, being flower was about an experiment with myself and with songwriting because I had never been a quote unquote songwriter before. And I wanted to see if I could do it and I did it. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons why I don't feel so sad that I'm not a 
songwriter, singer, songwriter anymore is that I wanted to see if I could do it. And I guess I, I, I did, yeah. um, with insect arc, the idea was, was to just see what happens when I make sounds and I don't care about things like song structure or choruses with melodies that are memorable or interesting or pretty or anything. I didn't want to have any um, limitation or any pressure on myself because I had just come out of this very long relationship with this project that, you know, had kind of broken my heart because it didn't have a chance to live. So I was wow. like, well, I'm just going to allow myself to fuck around. And, you know, early on when I went from being somebody who was in bands, you know, collaborative bands like gift horse, for example, and between gift horse and being flower, when I was learning all these different instruments, I'd make these weird little sound pieces and recordings of little abstract sort of textural compositions or just drones or playing with sounds. And okay. I really, really enjoyed it. And so I naturally gravitated towards that. And I think that's why the early on with insect arc, it was more, um, it was more abstract. It was more drone based. It wasn't really as concerned with, with songs. And it was right. Right. Just letting shapes kind of form themselves. So. And if it tickled my brain in the right way, I was like, yeah, that's <laughs> cool. I like it. And it doesn't have to be anything. And I was amazingly, no, I mean, people don't believe me when I say this, but um, I was very unaware of the genre that people consider insect art to be part of at that time. So this is 20, the end of 2011, beginning of 2012. Most of what people consider like insect art to fit into this like experimental doom genre, like I was totally unaware that that existed oh, really? for the most part. Wow. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know about most of those bands. I'm not ashamed to admit it. Like, you know, I'm some newcomer, like whatever. I've been listening to metal <laughs> since 1982. So, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's, um, like I didn't know about all these bands and okay, fine, whatever, yeah. you know? So anyway, the idea was, was to just like make something cause I was, I was contemplating like what, you know, I've dedicated my adult life to music. Like what the fuck am I doing? Like, yeah, you know, unfortunately being a goal oriented person is that you want to see some fruits of your labor and you yeah. know, no artist. If an artist expect goes into something expecting to make a living off of it, then I think that, you know, you can question their motivation, not that that it's a bad thing, but that was never my point. So, right, right. That's, that's um, not why you're doing it. That's not why I'm doing it. No. So, so I thought like, just go for it, see what happens and just come up with some stuff. That's so there's, what I did. there's insect arc. one insect arc song with lyrics. Yeah. So oh, on the first seven inch. Yeah. So why yeah, you said you wanted to kind of back away from being a front person. Why did you start singing on initially? And, and, nothing since 
Because I, because it was something that I could do. Because what I was doing was playing bass and lap steel and synthesizer and doing all these like live loops and launching off samples and like it's very like being an octopus, you know. Right, right. You know, like how many things can one person do? And it got to be a bit ridiculous. And I was like, well, I'm not even <laughs> utilizing this one ability to make sound, which is my voice. And so I tried it. And what I didn't like was that I started, unbeknownst to myself, really, um, going back into songwriter brain. Ah. And and I didn't I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to make it about that. I didn't want to be a front person, which is absurd because he's the only <laughs> band member. And I was yeah. playing shows, so of course I'm the yeah. you know <laughs> the front person. But it's not the same. Like when you're the singer in a band and you're standing there, people are watching you. They're expecting you to perform for them. They're expecting you to. They're expecting something from you. Right. I don't know what it is, but I was like, nope, I'm just a human making some sounds here. So I gave up on it also because singing was never easy for me. It was very, very much so like work to do it well. And I didn't, I thought if I removed the thing that made me feel the most vulnerable, that I would feel more powerful and free to not sit there and self-judge myself like, oh, that I sang that note out, out of tune or that was lame, sounded shitty. Like, I was yeah. like, fuck it. I'm just going to take take that out. And I, I like, I love instrumental music and I wanted to do something that was just totally neutral, like sounds from outer space, like who knows where it comes oh, from. Like, is this a person making it? Like, I don't know. So, and I didn't want it to be gendered either. Well, you, so I just was like, fuck it. So I just, I was like, after the first song, I was like, nope. But initially <laughs> there was, initially my whole set was, had, well, it was about half vocal stuff. And oh, that wow. first tour that I did with Enablers, like, I, um, there's some video on a, uh, on YouTube uh, from the first tour I did in 2012 and I'm singing on like half of it. Oh, wow. I lost half my, yeah, I lost half my first set of material. Some of it I thought was really good. I like I really liked it, but I was like, "Fuck it, I'm just gonna let it go." Yeah. <laughs> well, I love the the first full the EP that you did, Long Arms. Oh my gosh, Long Arms and oh, Lift Off are incredible. I <laughs> thanks. I absolutely Lift Off to me. I that's that's I live for that kind of sound. I absolutely love. Oh, that. nice. Marco turned me on to to Insect Arc, and 
the first song I heard was The Vanishing. Said so it was that you know the oh, last really? the last song on your on your latest album and I I it's remember interesting place to start. It was the yeah. last song on the last record. I know. I don't why know. Not? I don't know why. I, I just I can't even say I I picked it. I don't know if it, it may have been the first thing that came up on on YouTube when I started looking for it. And sure. I heard that, and I then I I didn't even realize at the time. Marco just said, "Hey, check out this. I, I want you to. You should have Dana on your show. Uh, check out her band Insect Arc. So I all I did was, was look it up on YouTube immediately. Right. And I think the first link was that song. So I just clicked on that. And then I didn't even realize at the time that you were playing lap steel. So I just heard it. And all of a sudden yeah. I just heard it go, that, that, that des- the note descend. And I went, yes. I think I actually said it out loud and then scared my yeah. wife. So she's like, what are you, why are you talking to the computer? Yeah, exactly. Yes. Are you That's watching great. porn? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> more of that. More I say that. that a lot. <laughs> yes. Stand on the chair, put your arms up in victory. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the, that's this. I absolutely love that. That it's almost a sinister sound on that with, with the way oh, that. Yeah. I love it. That's the goal. That's oh, it's <laughs> awesome. That's that's what I like to hear. That's the goal. So, so I guess you're kind of in boat, same boat as a lot of us now, kind of sitting at home waiting for things to start happening again. Are you working on any new insect art music or any other projects musically? Um. Well. I know no. you do a lot of films. You do some film scoring also. I've, I've done a little bit. I would like to do a lot more, honestly. And it's something that um, if anybody knows somebody who wants me to make a film score for them, I can do it all. Uh, exactly. Sorry. No, 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 no. Really that... lame effort of pitching myself <laughs> my worst my the thing I'm the worst at selling that, myself. But, I am um, so bad at that too. That's why. That's why I'm not a professional photography anymore. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm it's terrible. It's hard. It's hard convincing people that you're the shit. You know, yeah. like you should hire me. Like I would never be able to say that to somebody. But um, I'm really interested in that. And um, I am not working on an album, for example. I mean, The Vanishing just came out a couple months ago. Yeah. And um, it came out, and then we left for tour, and then here we are so yeah. Yeah. you know it was a lot of work to get that record done and last year was really crazy and everything leading up to making that record and all the different things that transpired like you know the split with my last drummer Ashley and yeah. meeting Andy and uh, who's playing drums now and you know all the steps in between um, I've been doing some synthesizer work on my own, making sound pieces. And, oh, cool. um, you know, I have all my gear with me because I was supposed to be on tour with Swans right now. So I have a bass, a lap steel, a synthesizer, a laptop, and then like a little bit of clothes <laughs> <laughs> not, and not, ma- not many, honestly. And, um, oh, so, you know, to be honest, and this is something I think that I've heard other people, you know, artists saying is that they're having a hard time making new work. And here's my theory. 
and it's maybe totally wrong, but what I think happened, why I'm not using this time to write new music when like the days are really like long and pretty free, um, is that the, you know, facing what everybody's facing with this COVID coronavirus thing is, you know, the first weeks where everyone was just like, holy fucking shit. Like, am I about to get sick and die? Like, you know, yeah. I mean, I think everybody's brain was like, Whoa, what? Like, okay. I don't know how to act or work within this. Right. Right. Um, and then it was sort of like, okay, I haven't gotten sick yet. I guess I'm all right. I guess my methods of hand washing and hand sanitizer and going to the store or not or whatever, like it's basically okay. So the first month though, I think everyone was like, okay, I got to stay safe. And then it was like, okay, I guess I'm safe. And then it was like, everyone is saying this is really serious. Like, how long is this going to go for? Yeah. And so, you know, being, I personally can, I can only speak for myself, very concerned about like, what's going to fucking happen. Like this is the bottom is dropping out of everything as we know it. And the music yeah. business is being decimated and everyone's saying, you know, everything's been canceled and, you know, it's sort of like somebody saying like, yeah, we're going to maybe tear your house down. But it's cool. We'll let you know. You know, yeah. you're like, wait, what? You know, you, you can't do anything but sit around and worry about it. And that's kind of what I did for the first month. And then oh, the wow. second month, I was like, oh fuck, I am in so much debt. I haven't worked. All my animation work is dried up. Um, nobody knows what the hell is going on. And uh, you know, all the tours are being canceled. And I don't know when I'm going to be able to get out and work again, yeah. doing music work. And it's just like, and then, and then the depression set in and then it's like, Oh, there's going to be no more shows this year. And when the shit comes back, it's going to only like all the, the smaller bands are going to basically just have to wait because the venues and promoters and clubs, whatever's left, which will remains to be seen what's left yeah. after, you know, all these people go out of business is that they're going to only want to promote bigger shows that are guaranteed to have crowds because audiences also don't have money and promoters won't want to take risks and et cetera. And so it impacts every stage from the musicians down to, you know, the booking agents, the promoters, the people who own the venues, the bartenders, right. the merchandise companies, the people who provide equipment and vehicles for tours, like everybody's impacted. And this is a really hard thing to wrap your head around. So, yeah, cause I, I, even you just, you know, saying that there's a lot of things I didn't think about. You know, yeah, I mean, the whole thing. That, wanted to, to yeah, get bigger whole, artists. Yeah, I mean, so the whole bottom has, like, kind of dropped out, and we're kind of waiting to see how things land, and there's still a lot of questions about what's going to happen with the rest of the year. Like, it is possible that some um, performances will be allowed under, you know, 500 people or 250 people and you know, but nobody knows. And yeah. I think that what the real problem that I'm experiencing and in my inability to sit down and write music is that life in general feels so incredibly uncertain 
and just unhinged and out of control that I can't focus. So instead I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm just putting my energy into other stuff right now. Like coming on my podcast. To, yeah. Or, I'm happy to do podcasts <laughs> and talk. Um, but you know, it also has to do with like isolation and, you know, fear and like really big existential questions are coming up and I'm partially allowing myself the time to rest, which is not something that I've done for years. And I think a lot of people are experiencing that, that there's suddenly all this time and so that they, they don't have to constantly have an agenda. There's no expectations of them. Um, I'm not jumping on the like, yeah, I got to do like a live stream thing because I'm just trying to like figure out where I'm, where I'm sitting in all this. And Mm -hmm. I know that at some point I'll start writing again, but at the moment, um, it's just kind of taking it day by day. So, well, I'm hoping things pick up in the near future, but like you said, you just never know because you not only have to get everybody on board on the artist side, but now you also have to convince people that it's okay to come out and see shows. So it's, you know, that's, it's gonna, it, it may, and you, you never know. I, you know, you don't know how the public is going to react to that stuff. So they, they could jump on board and say, yes, this is what I've been waiting for. I've been stuck at home for three months. Now I want to see a show or, yeah, but, but do you it think could be that, the other way. I feel, I feel like that as soon as people say like things are safe, most people are going to be like, all right, like, I think so. I don't know. I could be totally wrong about that though. Cause it really depends. Like who do you listen to? Like you're going to listen to, uh, you're going to listen to the president. Yeah. And it tells you it's safe to go to, you know, safe to go back out and resume life. You know, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, don't personally think that that's, what we're experiencing, I mean, I'm not in the U.S. right now, but what what's happening there, that is not leadership. So do you trust people to know, like where I'm at right now, like Ang- Angela Merkel, the chancellor of Germany, she was mm-hmm. a scientist. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like I think that she has a better idea of the scope of this and that, you know, you weigh your you weigh the pros and cons deciding, you know, it's safe to resume public gatherings yeah. and if they say that it's not then there's probably a reason and to, are we being told everything doubtful yeah. highly doubtful yeah i mean you know i don't think we ever are on anything so Never. it's it's definitely not so you know no I, way i'm gonna leave it I'm, once things start to open up i'm I'm, I'm just going to have to make up my own mind as to whether I think it. I, I'm comfortable going out, in, in, you know, into a crowd or not. And because um, mm-hmm. I was, you know, I, I started doing some more music photography. I'd kind of stopped for years and then uh, started shooting some shows here over the past year or so. And I just started, uh, you know, uh, posting through a local, local, I guess, a DC area live music blog and. It's been a it's been a blast, and I got two shows into working with them, and then everything got shut down. I was like, Arr! so yeah, I'm I've got the bug. I'm I'm itching to get back to it, but then again, you know, I'm also gonna. I was also in the middle of of a crowd of people pressing against the stage, and I'm not, not sure if I'm good. comfortable with that at this point. So, 
So. Right. And wearing a mask is not going to keep somebody from like drooling on you or sweating on you. Or, exactly. And, you know, and we're not scientists. We don't know what is really, we don't understand the implications of this on a bigger scale. Nobody does. Right. Right. And if they do, we're not getting that information and we maybe never will. So yeah. I think we've got to just all write it out the best we can and try to, you know, do whatever you got to do to get through the day. I mean, I feel like people are having very different experiences depending on what their life is like. Like people who, you know, already work from home, you know, and if they have remote jobs, like they're handling it kind of okay. But then people who had to go to offices and have families and their kids are being now homeschooled over the computer, like their day-to-day life has been completely upturned. And I know that there's a lot of, there's a lot of, yeah, sure. I, mean, me. I have to go to the office every day. My job, I cannot do my job remotely. I'm hands-on. On, so you have been going to work? Yeah, every day. Uh, after, what happened was, uh, so they, when my wife got tested, they shut me down for two weeks. Uh, yeah, sure. And that was fine. And then in the middle of that, they decided we're going to take everybody in your department, we're going to split it in half and... You're going to work two weeks on, two weeks off for like a month. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I ended up having three weeks off because they said, well, you're already off. We're going to put you in the first group of people who are staying home. And then, mm-hmm. and so then, so then I was out for three weeks and then I went in for two weeks. And then they, in the middle of that, they decided, well, we're not going to do two weeks on, two weeks off. We're going to do one week now. And then, so you stay home for another week and then come back and then, so I stayed home for one week, and, and I was the only person in my department because my department's kind of small. And they were they were going to I was going to be off for one week, and then somebody else was going to be off for one week. Then the third person was going to be off for a week, and then the last person. Mm-hmm. And then so I got off for a week, and then they decided, no, we're not going to do any. They, we're not going to do that again. Everybody just come back to work. And right. so now everybody's pissed off because I'm the only one that got like this extended time off. I mean, they're not mad at me because you know it wasn't my choice. They they just they just told me. But now everybody, everybody in my area is just, is just back to going in every single day. And my kids have been out of school since March. Right. And, but I, I live in an area where there's, it's kind of rural. I'm out in, in Winchester and there's some rural areas where they can't guarantee that the kids have uh, high enough internet speeds to actually get the work for, and, and submit it. And so... They just decided, well, you're not, you don't have to, we're not going to require you to turn in any more work. School's basically over, but whatever's outstanding is still due. So just work on that. Uh, your teachers will be posting stuff to your Google, uh, Google Classroom accounts, but it's not required to turn it in because we can't guarantee that everybody has the ability to turn it in. So... Just, you know, try to do that. Maybe your teachers will take that into account for your grade. Maybe not. Who knows? Jesus. So it's crazy. So we're making our kids do it. But, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's, been, it's been tough because my wife can work from home, fortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. I can't. So she's, but she's got to do her job during the day and also keep track of the kids. Fortunately, the kids are, yeah. I got three teenagers, so they, they're all fairly self-sufficient. Right, but the schoolwork you got to stay on them because they're not going to want to do it. So you know, my wife. Yeah, I mean, what's the, the incentive? You know. Yeah, exactly. They've already been told it's not going to get graded. So 
Right. It's crazy. But all right. So I have just a couple more questions and then I can let you have the rest of your evening or afternoon. Yeah, sure. But before we do that, can I, can I ask you to hang out for just like um, 15 seconds? I just got to yeah. go get a glass of water. Yeah, okay, okay. Give me a sec. No Thanks. rush. Okay, great. All right. <laughs> so, all right. And, uh, that was easy. I had, I've had, uh, Mark Lanigan had to eat some yogurt when I had him on. And then you had Mark Lanigan on. I'm, I'm such a fan. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll send was you he chatty? Oh my gosh. We talked for almost two hours. It was insane. What? He was laughing his Can't ass off. to listen to that. Oh, he was laughing that his guy, ass off. Oh man. His voice is like, Oh, golden gravel. It's the best. It is. I, sometimes I'm, I post on some podcasting sites and, and they'll always, they're always trying to get engagement. So they're always like, well, if you could do change one thing on your podcast, what would it be? And mine's always, I would have Mark Lanigan's voice for my podcast. <laughs> That's what I would want for my podcast. The only thing I really want to change about this is my voice. Oh, your voice is fine. Come on. <laughs> Thank you. But I can't no. stand it. I, I, think that, I think everybody thinks that though. I don't think anybody really likes the sound of their own voice once they hear it recorded. But you get used to it, though, don't yeah, you? I don't know. I I guess so. It's it's. Uh, this is the third podcast I've done. I I did two sports podcasts before this. One was the DC area. And one was um, I've got a couple buddies of mine out in LA, and uh, uh, we did a com a sports comedy kind of podcast. Um, a buddy of mine, uh, he was a producer for the Jim Jeffries show, and so we got together and and did. He wanted to do a little break because. Jim didn't do a whole lot of sports stuff, and he's a huge sports fan. He's like, I gotta get my, I gotta be creative with sports. I gotta, I got. All right, let's do this. And uh, the other guy, I don't know if you ever watched the show Smallville. Um, Mm -mm. Okay, it's uh, it was a show about Superman as a teenager. (laughs) And uh, yeah, my buddy's brother played Lex Luthor on it. So I got those two guys out in L.A. and they're you know they're two single guys out in L.A. and, and it. The other side was me and my buddy Mike, and we're married in Virginia. And so we would just kind of have differing opinions on, on sports and on, and it just ended up being more comedy than sports. And it was a blast. Sounds great. Oh, it was awesome. But we, I, the first one I did, we did like a hundred and something episodes of the first episode, uh, of the first Whoa. podcast. We did exactly a hundred of that one, uh, uh, eight ball sports show that we did exactly a hundred episodes of that. And Mark Lanigan was my hundredth episode of this podcast so wow around a hundred around 300 episodes i'm starting to get used to my own voice i still don't particularly like it all that much but now i at least don't cringe when i hear it it's true it's true i like your voice just fine oh thank you thank you (laughs) all right so (laughs) so, um i guess the then the question i had and it's it's kind of out of left field at this point but uh, insect arc, the music sounds very uh, cinematic, like it could be a, a soundtrack. Uh, I've had some guests on the show think is, is talk about writing music, and they say they think of it visually. And is how do you how do you approach writing a song for for insect arc? Since there's no lyrics, and there's and, and like you said, you were trying to stay away at least in the beginning from song standard song form. structures and forms. Yeah. yeah. So how do you how do you compose for insect arc? I guess in a way it's not any different than what I used to do, which is that it's all based on inspiration from sound itself. Okay. 
um, because I was never driven to like spread a message lyrically, for example, which many people are. And, you know, that's an important part of their writing process for me. It was never like, I've got this burning message. I never considered myself a lyricist, you know, I never thought like I have this burning need to spread my wisdom like nothing like that. It's <laughs> for me, it's yeah, which is again, like I'm not knocking it whatsoever. I'm just saying, you know, for me personally, yeah. it's not the case. And I mean, I've, I've, so let's see. Um, I was doing um, like an email interview this morning and somebody asked me how I created one of the songs. So this might be an interesting way for me to sort of relay because it sort of made me think about because they said how did you create this song and this somebody who's a non-native english speaker so i was like what do you mean how did how did i create that song and so then i thought like okay how did i create that song and it's one of the new songs um on the vanishing it's called danube and and i was like "Hmm, okay how did i create that song so the first part of it was something well, to just give some context, the song is in three sections, and the first section is just lap steel. It's got these sort of weird, like, little synth outer space sounds for a couple seconds, and then there's this very lonesome, echoey lap steel melody, which is not really constrained by a time signature. And it's this this phrase it develops and then it kind of spreads out and then it repeats And then it goes to another section of the song, which is really big and orchestrated. The drums come in, there's bass, there's all these heavy synths, and it's this really um, looping kind of ascending melodic line that continues to build upward and upward, and then it kind of falls down, and then it repeats, and then it goes to this outro, which is this, like, kind of Pink Floyd sounding like really bummer jam. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, that's the song Danny. And so like what this interviewer was asking me, how did I create it? And I, what I told him was I said that the initial part of it was the, the first part of the song was something that I wrote in 2018, actually when the previous drummer Ashley and I were in Stockholm we were doing a residency at a place called EMS Stockholm, which is a like a analog synth mecca. Um, and we had a week-long residency there, a recording oh, cool. residency. And while we were playing with the synths, I had my lap steel because we had just been a road burn um, in the Netherlands, played there. And then we went to Sweden, and I wrote that melody in the recording studio there and then oh, just cool. kind of shelved it. And then later on came back to it and, you know, developed it into a song, but it, so it was just like a piece. I mean, it, I sat down with this instrument, the lap steel, which I'm in love with, and I think I'm getting to be okay at it. I would <laughs> not say that I'm, you know, I don't feel 
like I have command of the instrument, but I know how to okay. get some cool sounds out of it. And I, oh, you know, sure. I'm definitely getting better at it, but it's not like bass that I've been playing for, you know, I don't know, 20 something, 30 year, I don't know, yeah. a long time. Yeah. So I was a teenager, um, lap still less than 10 years and it's fretless and it's, you know, it's got a lot of challenges to it, but you know, okay. so it also allows you or allows one a person <laughs> to um, to come up with things that are unexpected, and that's I think a lot of what the the interest of the instrument was to me. Not just because sonically it's really um, it's really you know scary sounding and yeah. it's really like crazy sounding, and it sounds like you know you can strangle it and you can like get it to coo like a baby. I mean, it's really a dynamic instrument, and that's why I love it. But, you know, I sat down, and I kind of came up with this melodic idea, and I was like, that was cool. And then, you know, from there, I just kept playing it, and then I, then I recorded it. So maybe the, I will try to reel my rambling in to answer your original <laughs> question. So I'll come up with something. I'll just sit down. With the an instrument, whether it's the lap steel or a synthesizer, or sometimes I write on bass, and yeah. I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. I don't want to forget that, so then I record it, and I'm just like, Oop, just record it as is. Don't overthink it. Document the very idea in its like original form with all of its mistakes or whatever. Mm -hmm. And because if it's not good enough, I'm just like, okay, that's whatever. Like that's gone. I don't care. But if I like something enough to document it usually i'm gonna develop it so i'll come back to it at some point and i'll be like okay that's cool this could be better i'll change that note to this note okay that's cool hmm maybe this should be on another instrument no keep it on this instrument and i'll be like well maybe i could write another part for that or maybe i could write you know the b section to the song or maybe i could write a harmony for that and this kind of builds on itself and then yeah. You know, I'm constantly demoing things. And then when I have a chance to get away from it for a day or two and come back and listen to it, it'll strike me in a different way and I'll get excited and then more ideas will come. But it takes a little bit of time. I mean, not always, but the time to sit back and like listen to something almost as if I didn't write it and to sort of see about where I think okay. it could go. So I'm sort of directing myself oh, in a way. Wow. That's okay. Well, that's really cool. I mean, it's and it's worked out perfectly because the new album "Vanishing" is just—it's awesome. It's spooky. It's sinister sounding. It's uh, which is why when I heard be you know the first couple of tracks from "Being Flower" and then I heard that I'm like, this is the same person. This is crazy. So, it, but I once you explained it a little bit to me, it, it made a little more sense, and I I made that connection a little bit easier so yeah i mean the new record sounds really different than the last you know the last full length yeah insect arc release which was called marrow hymns i mean the first few releases there was a seven inch called collapsar that came out in 2012 and then the next year i put out the long arms ep and then two years after that in 2015 i put out the first full length portal well, and those all three were all me. Like I did, you know, bass and slap steel, um, okay. program drum machine, and I recorded it all myself. And then 
um, an engineer in New York named Ethan Donaldson. He mixed it and, you know, different people mastered some of those things. But, um, and then when I met, well, then I decided I wanted to get a drummer because I was just being a bass player. I was like, God, like, I just, it's really hard to get excited about playing to a drum machine, especially yeah. for, for live. Yeah. Sonically, I thought it was cool, but for live, I was like, eh. So right. the idea was to try to like do it, you know, and I met Ashley and she was like, yeah, let's try it. And then I was like, oh, this is fun. This is cool. And, you know, we got along really well. And even though she lived in Portland and I lived in New York, you know, we yeah. made it work for a while. And eventually, you know, while we were working on demos for The Vanishing, she and I, basically, there was a breakup. And I don't really want to get into that because it's this whole long own yeah, thing. Yeah. But, um, you know, a lot of that music was pretty far along. Um, I had been writing all year and we had been sending some stuff back and forth. And then I was in Oregon where she lives and we were working on like just the sort of really skeleton of the demos, just the shapes of the songs. And then I went back to New York and I wrote all the overdubs and then we had this split and then I threw away about half of that. Oh, um, or yeah, or all a lot of sort of the ideas that she had contributed, her drum beats, all that stuff just didn't stick because I met Andy and I, and I wanted Andy to, to Andy Patterson, who's playing drums on the vanishing, mm-hmm. who is an incredible drummer and he's an incredible recording engineer, a fantastic human and has played in tons of bands. Many people know him from his band, Sub Rosa, um, okay. who he was in for years and, um, you know, he joined sort of not immediately as a member, but, you know, I wanted him to put his own stamp on it because we, we connected musically very quickly. And, um, I actually did something I've never done, which was actually bomb the plane ticket and flew him to New York to try him out because there was a tour planned just a couple of months later and the album was already planned. Oh, wow. Like our manager, yeah, our manager had already you know, together with us, develop this timeline to make and record and release a new album. And so it was important to stand. So, so yeah, so Andy and I worked together for a month, um, and reworked all those new songs. Oh, wow. And then went on tour. Man, that's a trial by fire right there. It was intense, but you know, he's, he's a really hard worker and he's really fast and his ideas were great and his approach was really good. And so we were basically pulling together live versions of material that had never, that wasn't even recorded at the same time trying to, yeah, at the same time trying to also prepare for the recording session, which was going to happen within a week of the tour being finished. And the tour went really well. It was with uh, a North American tour with a Finnish band called Aransi Pazuzu, which I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they're incredible. Yeah. So we went and did the tour with them. Then we made the record. And because I had already written all the overdubs between Ashley and I splitting and Andy joining a lot of the work, was done because you know you write sort of this when you're a two-piece you know you can't play everything all at the same time so i had to write the overdub like the secondary melody ideas and sort of little synth blobs and blips and things like that so so you know so last year was just a total fucking 
whirlwind. <laughs> and, um, you know, so in a way, like what came out of it with the vanishing was like, I obviously haven't listened to it in a couple months. like really right. since we finished it. Yeah. But, um, but you know, when I do hear it, a lot of times I'm really surprised because it came together in some ways it was a really long process, but the final product came together very fast. Colin Marston, who we made the album with and Andy and I had just been on tour playing these things every night. And so the album was recorded and mixed in three weeks, which the previous album took a year. Oh my gosh. So, you know, so things are are constantly shifting and changing. And I've kind of just accepted that my life is just going to be like (laughs) kind of upside down. And some of those choices are, you know, intentional and some of them, um, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm not going to say that I've handled everything perfectly, you know, like we're humans and we make mistakes, but like I am trying to do things right and do right by people and, you know, be in service to my creative ideas because it kind of seems like that's all I have. And I don't mean to sound like, uh, you know, dramatic or whatever, but if you dedicate your life to art, then all you have to show is the, you have to be able to stand behind what you made. I mean, you don't, you don't have to, I mean, it's important to clarify, you don't have to stand behind what you've made, but if that's what defines your life, I hope for for you or for anybody that you can stand behind what you've made. Cause if you do a half-assed job of something, but you also say that's what defines your life, then what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, exactly. You're not, you're not dedicated to it. Uh, and at least that, that, that shouldn't be what defines your life. Then if you're only doing it half-assed. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I just feel like I've given up like pretty much a life of, I don't know. I feel like I've given up a lot of things in service to be able to do what I want to do. And that's why it's like such a bitter, painful thing when things don't work is because you feel like, you know, life can go many directions if you're lucky and privileged, which I guess, you know, in some ways being a white person from North America, you know, I recognize that there are privileges to that, which, you know, I'm not going to, say I'm proud of, but that was what I was born into. And many people would consider that lucky. And, you know, I've been fortunate to be able to make, to even have the choice to say that, you know, I'm going to define myself as an artist, but nobody's like made it easy for me. Like I don't get grants and, you know, I don't, people are not like handing me shit. It's like, it's like, there's no nepotism involved here. Like I've had to like work my ass off for everything always and still sometimes get nothing and still decide to do it anyway. So, you know, during a pandemic where you're like, you know, no wonder I can't fucking sit down and write any music because it's just like the weight of the world. But you know, this is, this is going to pass. It might be a year. Yeah. Yeah. It might be longer. It will. will. And, and I know, or or it won't, you know what I mean? And I'll get a job in a supermarket. Like, I don't know. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like what's, I don't know. I know. It's a a really weird time. I know exactly what you mean. And that's uh, one of the reasons I had to, I ended up getting out of, photographies because i needed something with a more uh a steadier income my wife uh well you have a family though that's a different situation yeah yeah exactly but that was we decided when uh when we got married my wife said well when we have kids i'd love to stay home with them and so that's fine with me no problem and then uh, you know but all of our uh 
health insurance, everything came through her job because I was independent. And so at that point, I'm like, you know what? I'm happy to do it. Let's do it. I'd rather, yeah. I want, I've, I've always wanted to have kids. I love it. So then I went out and got a job and I, now I do the photography, but I kind of, I kind of like the way it's going right now because I'm able to do it without the pressure of, of, of it having to sell it and, and, and having to make yeah. money from it. And I can, I feel like, you know, for me, the way, the where I'm at right now, I, I'm actually helps me to be a little more creative and, and, and maybe experiment a little bit more where, because I don't have to worry about somebody saying, oh, you, you shot, you know, 400 pictures of this and I don't like any of them. We can't use any of them. Right. So definitely. This is exactly why I have two careers. I have one as a musician and one yeah. doing computer animation so that I don't have to compromise, you know, one for the other. I mean, you know, I have to fund my own music. Right. Yeah. I mean, not to say that I don't make money with it, you know, but it's not like I'm not making a living off it most of the time. Yeah, exactly. It's it's not like, you know, the, you're, I don't know, going back to Metallica. It's not like, you know, you're signed to a, a label and they're giving you all kinds of money to make to make albums. You know, you don't have like this unlimited budget to, to go and make no. The Vanishing. <laughs> so. No, I mean, The Vanishing was made on a, on a quite small budget, you know, and I mean, I feel really fortunate to, you know, work with the label that has put out Vanishing and put out Marahim's. They're called Profound Lore Records and like fantastic label run by Chris Bruni, who has like Chris Bruni runs, owns, operates that label for years and like, you know, just completely dedicated. I mean, it's a total honor to, to have a label and to, you know, have booking agents and work with people that take you seriously, you know, having a manager, having, having a community. These are things that I don't take lightly because there are many, many incredibly talented people in all fields who have nobody who takes them, you know, seriously enough to want to work with them. So, yep. I mean, there's tons of amazing artists who like musicians, bands who can't find somebody to put their album out yeah. for, you know, even if they pay for it, I mean, what the fuck, you know, you want to give away your art and you can't even find somebody to give it to. Like that's yeah. the reality of, of creative artists. It's like, it's wild. That's what blows my mind. You know, people say like, yeah, listen to my album, you know, trying yeah. to beg people to hear what they do. Yeah. For free. I know. I know. It, it, it's heartbreaking because you put your heart and soul into it and then and people are like, no, no, thanks. I don't want to put that out. Like I'm, I'm too busy looking on Instagram to, you know, read your poem or look at your photograph or check out your song. I mean, we're all, you know, we're all part of it, unfortunately, because yeah. we're all completely inundated by media to the point that, you know, our brains are fucking jelly. Like I yes. can't look at another thing. It's been interesting while I've been in, here in Berlin, I've been in this sort of like media blackout because of um, problems with internet where I'm staying. And I actually have had very limited time online and it's been incredible. <laughs> that, you know, <laughs> we try to do that here and, and limit the kids with their connections each day. But man, it's hard when they're teenagers. My, you know, my oldest daughter hasn't seen her boyfriend in like two months um, so, so like, all right, well, you know, you, you guys can go and FaceTime and that's fine. And, and then, 
then but then i got to be fair to my son and and the youngest daughter you know right because their friend my 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 uh, son's best friend just moved to north carolina so that let them get online and, and chat and play games and then it's it's tough it it, it you, you got to limit it but sometimes it's the only way that you know, my teenagers can communicate with their friends, which is a huge part of being a teenager. So it's it is it's a weird, weird time to navigate raising kids. I'll tell you that. I bet. I feel, I really feel for people who are trying to raise families. Cause you know, especially like kids and teenagers, like they don't get to be 14 again or 15 again, exactly. or like be in junior high about to go into high school again. Like my sister has kids and, you know, they're stuck at home like everybody else's kids. And, yeah. you know, there's like this, like, <laughs> there's going to be a lot of really similar years, but they're not there yet. Then. Yeah. It, like my my uh, oldest daughter, her boyfriend is a senior. This it was a senior this year. So, you know, his graduation is completely screwed up. So, you know, so got, what happens? Does he graduate anyway? The, yeah, he he graduates, but I'm not exactly sure how they're doing the the ceremony. If the, some places are doing them online, some places are just delaying them until mm-hmm. they're they're allowed to have a gathering where they can the kids can walk down the and and get their diplomas. On. So it just depends school to school, county to county. You know, there's there's no set way to that anybody's actually doing. It's just. It's really weird. My, my oldest is a junior, so she'll be a senior. So hopefully, you know, this will clear out before she, she gets to you know, graduate and all. But it's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, well, nobody knows what's going to happen. That's mm-hmm. for sure. Exactly. It and, could go on for a long time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I know I've, I have taken up, you know, a good chunk of your afternoon here. So I really, really do appreciate you coming on and, and talking so openly about everything and, and telling me about Insect Dark because it's such a fascinating band to me. And I, I'm, like I said before, I'm upset that I've missed out on being Flower, but I am going back and, and diving headfirst into all that. My wife loves being Flower. And, oh, thanks. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be playing it for the kids because – <laughs> they've got a, they've got a pretty good palette. They they they've got a pretty bet. pretty wide range of people that they listen to. So, well, I really appreciate you taking the time to, you know, do thorough research so that you can ask me questions that uh, you oh. know inspire me to to talk because it's not always the case. So yeah. Thank you for your time as well, Mark. Oh, it's my pleasure. The, my I've said this before, and and it's gonna until I you know this whole whatever podcast ends the way i look at it is you're kind enough to to come up and and spend some time with me and talk to me about your career the least i can do is is know about it do some right. research well i hope it wasn't too uh rambling got me kind of going on a few of those things <laughs> <laughs> no to anybody who's listening and has made it this far i commend you you get a virtual gold crown Excellent. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for spending so much time with me. It's been, a, it's been so much fun. All right. Thanks, Mark.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 